This season of Life on a Plate is sponsored by Bart Ingredients, whose extensive range of quality herbs, spices, seasonings and pastes are all available at Waitrose. Bart offers so many simple, delicious ways to elevate your cooking. From aromatic whole spices to handy blends and pastes such as Ra's El Hanout or black garlic paste. They'll help you build incredible depth of flavour and create beautiful dishes. What's more, with over 50 years of experience working with producers all over the globe, Bart's guarantee their ingredients are grown and harvested responsibly with care for people and the planet. So whether you're just starting out on your cooking journey or you're, forgive the pun, a seasoned chef, you can relax and trust Bart to open up a world of exciting flavour. Go to waitrose.com forward slash Bart to discover the range. Hello and welcome to the second season of Life on a Plate, the podcast from Waitrose. In each episode, we talk to some very special guests about what food means to them, asking about their comfort foods and favorite dishes, their food memories and go-to ingredients, and finding out a lot more about them in the process. Alison, hey. how are you? I'm really good, thank you. How are you? It's been a while. It has been a while. Um, it's really good to see you. This is great. It's good to be back, isn't it? I'm very excited. Yeah, I feel like we know what we're doing this time. It's kind of... <laughs> <laughs> Don't say that. Um, I wanted to ask you about something, actually, that I saw you um, put on Instagram, which really made me laugh, which was you um, trying to tell your parents about the podcast and their reaction to it. I, I feel like you've got to share this with Oh, I mean, like all mums and dads, they were really excited. They couldn't wait. They downloaded the trailer, so they were ready. And on the first morning, they did ring up in a panic because I'd also told them about our photo shoot and how much fun it was and just how much how much we both enjoyed it. And so I think they also thought that our, our podcasts were being filmed as well. So they were going, we can't get the sound. We can only get the sound to work. We can't get the video to work. <laughs> I love that. I, I, I just love the idea of them struggling to get the, the video to match the sound. Like, a, And my 15-year-old nephew rings me up after each episode and gives me his feedback. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> Look at that. We've sort of got every demographic covered, <laughs> which which I absolutely love. Mind you, you got me into trouble. Well, did I? Because, yeah, mentioning that I posted lemon drizzles in the post because there's, I've had a series of people saying, where's mine? So, yeah. We should have seen this coming, really, shouldn't we? Yeah. Oh, man. Well, I was going to ask what you've been doing, but you've basically just been making lemon drizzles, <laughs> delivering cakes nonstop. Yeah. What have you been up to? What have I been up to? What I've been doing, actually, I've bought a load of cookbooks and uh, I've been kind of just sort of re-engaging and re-sort of like working through things. And it's kind of really making me miss restaurants, miss travel, but it's a really great way to sort of bring places back to life. I bought one uh, fantastic uh, veg- vegetarian-focused one by a place called Superiority Burger. It's a very okay. cool uh, New York, uh, all veggie, mostly vegan restaurant. But it's really, um, yeah, really, really great. And it was kind of, uh, it was that weird thing of looking through the book and it's got great pictures of New York and stuff in it. And that was making me... Sweated the appetite. Oh, completely. Yeah, I'm sort of, uh, <laughs> I'm very ready to go. So what do you do? Make yourself cook a, a new recipe every week or a couple oh, of times a week? I wish I wish I could be that kind of uh, committed and strict with it. I don't know about you, but it's very, uh, 
you know, something or I'll spot something on Instagram or someone will mention something and it will just worm away there for weeks and weeks. And I'll kind of visualize this dish and I kind of have to kind of bring it into being. Somebody posted a a picture of salt and pepper, crispy squid with a chili sauce. And that's what's lingering away at the moment. And you can't get that from a takeaway. (laughs) Yeah, right. We've got an amazing guest coming up. Uh, it is the incredibly talented Candice Carty Williams, who is, of course, a young British author who has taken the book world by storm. Her debut novel, Queenie, was uh, not only the subject of a massive bidding war between four publishers before it was even released, uh, it then became a bestseller and last year was named Book of the Year at the Booksellers National Book Awards. It's hugely significant that um, because Candice uh, was the first black author to win that prize. Um, and it's richly deserved completely. Uh, Queenie is, to my mind, sharp, clever, funny, outrageous, and gives you such an amazing insight into a way of life, a culture, and um, a part of the world. Um, it tells the story of a young black woman uh, negotiating her life in London amid the push and pull of family and friends and work and relationships. Um, I absolutely gulped it down. I found it a pretty unputdownable and I'm really looking forward to speaking to her. How are you feeling about this one, Alison? I'm really looking forward to speaking to her because she just writes about um, the area of South London I live in. Mm, God, yeah. Uh, I find just the Afro-Caribbean food in Brixton fascinating and I just love, I'd just love to hear a bit more about her memories of home cooking and what her grandmother cooked yeah no i i think i i didn't put it together that yeah obviously she's uh she's talking about your manner to a degree but yeah it's, it's a part of london and the world that i know really well and she kind of brings it so vividly to life but um yeah i can't wait um she's uh she's absolutely brilliant and a real force for change as well she certainly is so all right here is our conversation with Candice Carty-Williams. Hey, good to see you, Candice. Good to see you too. Hi. Hi, nice to see you. We wanted to talk, first of all, because we zero in on all things food, we saw that in the wake of your historic win um, at the uh, British Book Awards, uh, Book of the <laughs> Year, I can tell it's a great subject already, um, but... <laughs> A huge deal, amazingly well-deserved. We read that you kind of, in the wake of that moment, you put your phone on airplane mode, made yourself salmon and broccoli, and just kind of tuned things out for a moment. Is is food one of the things that you use to kind of quieten down the world when things get too loud and how you kind of comfort yourself in those times of intense scrutiny? That's such a good question. For me, f- food is like a weird thing. It's like fuel, but also like when I do that. So I'm really bad at eating properly. And so when I know like I'm going to eat something, I'm like, okay, it's going to be like a good thing. It's going to be like a really delicious thing to you, which might not be delicious to other people, which I'm sure we'll get into. Um, but it's always like it kind of punctuates a moment. And so for me, it was like you were going to like the announcement's going to come out and then you're going to cook and you're going to eat and that's how you're going to end it. And then I had, I think, a turmeric tea mm. just to just to sort of like round round off the day, I guess. Yeah, yeah. 
reading Queenie, um, although it's not explicitly about food in any way, like food really shone through for me as a constant throughout it and um, something that I could really relate to in terms of, you know, the grandparents and, you know, just being prepared snacks when you didn't even ask for them and then insisting you don't want them, but still eating the plantain that's put in front of you. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> what was, yeah, so what are your early memories of food and its place within your family and, and your kind of situation that are Take us back to then. So I've got one memory that I have for myself. Like my first food memory for myself was cheese on toast because it was something that my mum would make me in the evenings. And I remember reading this amazing kids book that I'm always trying to remember the name of. So if anyone remembers it, please holler at me. But it's basically this family and no one can decide what they want for, for, for takeaway that Friday mm-hmm. and so they go to so their mum is like okay well we can just get everything and so they go to all of these different food shops and I remember reading that as a kid and being like oh my god like all of this amazing like so it was like Indian Chinese fish oh, and chips amazing. and I was like oh my god wow and my mum was like okay you can have cheese on toast and I was like oh okay thanks mum so I would like read every page and like look at all these illustrations of all this exciting food and then I would have like one bite of cheese on toast and I'd be like it's basically the same thing um and so that's a memory that I had and so that was my thing so that's kind of like me and my mum so I lived with my mum for a bit and then we moved in with my grandparents um and that was very much food is not fuel food is love with my grandparents yeah especially my nan so my nan is like if you aren't eating then something is wrong and it's a bit like no I'm just not hungry um and so uh, but with my grandparents I remember my nan telling me and this is the food memory that was given to me I was really young and I just started eating solids and they gave me some white fish and potato and I made a funny face and then I reached down into my throat and I pulled out <laughs> this fish bone. Oh, and then just whoa. like and then just like carried on going. And was just like, anyway. And they were like terrified. And they were like, my God, we could have killed her. And I think they were, but they were always like, at that point, we knew you were very determined to get things done by yourself. And I was like, yeah, that sounds like me. Yeah. Um, it's become like a like, metaphor for your entire existence ever. Just ever get since. on with yeah. it. Just, just get, get on, on with it. it. Just reach down your throat. Like, Pull her fishbone out and carry on. And get on with it. Exactly. But in terms of growing up around food, food, the pot was always on. And I learned to cook. I'm not sure where I learned to cook from because I never used to watch them cooking because it was never something, it was never like, come and help me. It was always like, again, food being love and comfort was like, it's going to be ready for you. So you just need to go and do what you're doing and I'll call you. And I'd always be like, do you want help or do you want... And it would just be like, why would I, I don't understand what you're like, because it means that I'm not loving you in that way if I'm not doing everything for you, Um, which actually I'm quite averse to now because I'm a bit like, I like to do this stuff. So yeah, Mm. lots of food memories. Yeah, but Mm. also mainly being told to like, just go and like do something, mainly chores, (laughs) like go and do chores and then you can eat afterwards. Maybe just like, so I could lose some weight, probably. But did you say you like cooking now? So I love cooking now. I really do. I live by myself. So cooking is is a thing that I don't cook, cook very often. Um, and so like the other day, uh, my friend, it, it, he was talking about curry chicken and I was like, oh, I can make that really well. 
And he was like, seriously? And I was like, yeah, I can, I'm, I can do that. And I don't know where I learned the, I don't know where I learned it from. I think it's just like an intuitive thing. I think I'm quite an intuitive cook, but I've always got my like Jamaican seasonings and my curry powder and like you make your dumplings and you cut up your carrots and your potatoes. And so I made a huge batch of it and I put it in the freezer and I was like, I'll bring it to you because I love doing that. But otherwise I wouldn't do that because I live by myself. Yeah, yeah, completely. You've got some Indian heritage, is that right? Yeah. Have you explored it more in these times of DNA searches? I have. So my grand, my granddad is Indian and that kind of has, it doesn't reflect in his cooking or the way that he is. Um, but he, he has never spoken about his, his background, really. I think it's something that he just doesn't want to do. I think that he just, it's something that he's just not willing to talk about because he grew up in Jamaica. But I do understand from stuff I've heard from other people that his mum was um, from a, a higher caste than his dad. And so when his uh, mu- his parents uh, were together, his, and it spends a lot about my granddad and, and, and his ways, but his mum's family were like, yeah, you can't be together. So they ran away to Jamaica. Wow. So that's why my granddad was born and raised with his brothers in Jamaica. Wow. Wow. Yes, really intense. It's pretty, yeah. If you ever met my granddad, it would explain a, a, a lot about, about that man. Um, and so, uh, and so, and so, yeah. But I did some ancestry testing because I was really interested in that. And um, I, uh, you know, lots of things that I knew were there. But you know, from my dad's side, it was like thirty six percent Nigerian. My dad, my dad again is, is Jamaican. Um, and so, oh, like, hang on, being... I've got to stop there. You're Niger- You're basically Nigerian. We can claim you. It's can fine. You imagine? Brilliant. Okay, but what I'm not going to do is go on Twitter and be like, "Hey guys, so I am like thirty six percent Nigerian." So I'll be like, "Shut up." Um, and so, uh, and so, and so, I, so I knew. So I kind of guess those things. And my nan had said like, "Oh, I think we're from like Sierra Leone somewhere." So Sierra Leone was in there, and I was like, "Okay." Okay, so everyone kind of knows a bit. And it said that I was 13% um, South Asian. And I was like, okay. And then it said I was 13% Italian. So I, I was like, hi, granddad. Um, so I've just done this thing. And this is the thing that it, it says. And he was like, okay. And I was like, so is there any Italian? Do you know? And he was like, I don't know. <laughs> and I was like, well, can we talk about, can, can we talk about it? And he was like, no, there's nothing to talk about. And I was like, okay, 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 cool. So again, a very <laughs> private man, um, right, right. a very private man. And so that was really interesting. So it was like, he's obviously like, he's got so much like Italian and Indian in him. It's really interesting to hear you say that because obviously in Queenie and I hope we get to chance to talk about your next novel as well. It seems like um, families and family secrets and kind of, kind of slightly the diffuse nature of, 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 the family units and different ways of being raised that's a real preoccupation of yours and you can see that yeah yeah it kind of comes comes you know it comes from that situation and the sort of uh your mysterious italian uh, roots yeah i know so basically yeah italian indian nigerian oh my god yeah never gonna say that out loud um but also thinking about so my dad who doesn't feature much in in anything that i Mm. say i have some really interesting food memories of so my dad is an incredible cook so mm-hmm. if you don't know this, Jamaican men are the best cooks. Like it's just, I don't know why, I don't know how, but we all know it. And so if you step into like any Jamaican restaurant, there'll be a man in the back who is in charge of everything. Um, and there's one uh, Caribbean takeaway that I go to called Cool Breeze. And the chef, he is vegan, he's Ital, he doesn't eat meat, but he makes the most incredible curry goat. He makes the most incredible brown sea chicken just because... It's wow. instinctive. He doesn't yeah. taste it. He just does it and it's done and it's incredible. Um, 
But my dad, who worked for London Underground uh, for 30 odd years, I would go and visit him at his offices, which were in offices. I say offices, like the little station in Morden or Kennington. Mm-hmm. And it was just like sort of like space that they would be in. And there wasn't much to do because he was basically on call for most of it because he was he fixed signals. That was his job. And so he would cook all the time. He would just cook. And I remember going there one day and just that being like, hi, I'm just sort of here just seeing how you are. <laughs> and he was frying plantain. So all of my memories of, of him in that office or him doing work are just like frying plantain and waiting to be called to work. Wow. And so I have all of these like disparate, but when I go to stay with him and he'd cook, it was like the best food I'd ever had. Like he'd make like pork and he'd make like incredible chicken, like amazing rice. Like he's just an amazing cook. And I would always ask like, who taught you? And he'd just be like, hmm. It was <laughs> a, a man of a few words, a man of a few words. Mm. You mentioned you live alone now, but one of the big threads of Queenie are some disastrous flat shares. Take us back to your flat share days and have you any memories of people cooking? And more importantly, have you got any horror stories of them? Do you know what? I just At, at university, I lived with seven other people and that was a shock to the system. And I, I look back now and I'm like, how did you? Because you can't live with one other person now. So how did you do <laughs> seven other people? But I guess it was like you were 18 to 21. So yeah, you didn't yeah. care as much. It was what everyone did. <laughs> and you, you had, had to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. You had no choice. And so it was like them and sometimes their boyfriends would come and live with us. So sometimes we were living with like 10, 11 people. And just remember never being able to get into the kitchen. And so I would do lots of, again, so that's where I think I'd come from having all of this food cooked for me. And like, again, like my mum would always make ackee and saltfish, which is, ackee is like a Jamaican fruit and you have it with saltfish, which is salted cod, you season it all up and you have it with that and rice or dumplings. And so I'd come from like having all of these like amazing foods at home that were just like, my mum would, you know, you just take it for granted when your mum is like always cooking for you. And then being like, okay, so now I have to cook. And then being like, okay, I guess I know how, but then just doing lots of like, what is the quickest thing that I can have? And that is where I would just literally just be like, I think that is university. I just had sandwiches because I was like, that is the easiest thing. And also eating out a lot because you just did. Because also you had like a student loan. Mm. So you had money and you could go <laughs> and like eat and be like, oh yeah, I'm in a restaurant. Um, because I've yeah. got like, weirdly, yeah. I've got like three grand in the bank. <laughs> I feel like it is an unwritten story of uh, university life, certainly like the modern version of it where you would get dumped this money and you would kind of be sort of play acting as a grown-up almost like going to Italian restaurants and eating out quite a lot yeah yeah very much so and so there was that so but that was a lot of sandwiches because again I think I just have this thing where if I'm not sitting down to eat a meal I I think I think it's come from family I think it's like you know there were so many rules it was like you sit with your meal because like we're having a meal now and you don't have your drink. I remember in childhood not being allowed to have my drink until I'd finished my food. Wow. Because it was like, you mm. will just fill yourself up <laughs> with this <laughs> drink. And, and not have like, enough room for food. Honestly, but I'd be like, I'm so thirsty. But like, I don't care for thirsty. I don't care for thirsty. <laughs> you'll, be, you'll be less thirsty when you finish your food and you've had your drink. And so like, so there was very much like that. So then I think in terms of just like living my life, I think it just became like, unless I was doing eating in that context or like sitting down properly with a person in front of them, food just becomes like something that you should just eat to keep going. And so even now I eat like one big meal a day 
And then the rest of it, I just maybe like might graze or like right. I okay. might have a smoothie. And then my friends, my friend, my poor friends, every, I've got like every day I've got like four people being like, have you eaten yet? <laughs> and I'll be like, no, 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 I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to. And then later on being like, okay, so what have you eaten? And I'll be like, okay, okay, okay. Because I just, I'll forget when I'm writing, I definitely forget. So again, but like the, the yeah, sorry. So the flat share thing was like, just grab what you can. So mm, like, and like mm. any anytime I've lived with people, it was just like, it's not going to be a thing. It's just going to be like, what is the quickest thing to get you in and out of that kitchen? Because that's what I was going to ask you. I was going to pick up on what you said about um, grazing while you're writing and concentrating. You know, what, what, what are you snacking on? What are you grazing on? So I am a very, I was saying to someone yesterday, I'm a very intense uh, person, but also I know that I'm a very intense writer. So when I started my second novel, uh, I'd written a, a whole first draft of one and I was like, I'm not really vibing with it. I don't know. I don't really love it. And so I just got rid of it. And I was like, I'm just going to start a new one. And so that evening I put my headphones on, had my laptop and I was like, just write, just write what, how you're fe- what you're feeling. And so I just wrote this 10,000 words and then I sort of looked up and it was like 3am and I was like, mm. you, haven't, you haven't eaten for hours, like all day. And that's how I write. I just get into it and I can't yeah. think, or think of anything else. You're just in the zone and everything else goes out. Everything else goes out. I don't, I can't see anything. I can't, like my phone is, is, is there, but I'm not really engaging in it. And I think, but also I think that's why I write at night best because it means that there's no distractions because I'm very easy distracted. Um, and if someone is like, hi, you're okay. I'll be like, why? Was it, are you okay? <laughs> is everything, is everything all right? So I'm just kind of like, so I, it's best for me to like turn my phone off um, or right when like everyone is asleep. Because then if I turn my phone off, I'm like, what if something's happened and someone's calling you? <laughs> and so, and so I, I finished and I was like, you should eat something because you can't see properly right now. And I just ended up having loads of cashew nuts. And so like what I do is I usually, it's usually cashews. Cashews are like my thing because like I like how they taste and they're like quite good that energy. in terms of energy i mean there's a lot of energy um in them there's a lot of <laughs> calories in them which i'm not really i'm not a calorie counter but i know that cashews are quite extreme <laughs> but they're delicious they really are delicious so so yeah. delicious um so cashews and then like lots of water and i don't so i don't i don't drink coffee or anything so nothing like that keeps me going so like cashews are my my snack and i have got a massive sweet tooth but the sweet tooth will come as like that will be rewarded when i've like done the work if that makes sense obviously you've spoken as well about going on the writers the retreat offered by the author Jojo Moyes who kind of gave you a week and you you're very um candid and generous about the importance of that and having that space and time to kind of breathe Queenie to life as it were um was that the situation during that week then because you wrote correct me if I'm wrong you wrote 40,000 words within that week yeah, no, I did, I did. Yeah, which is incredible. So was it just, as you've suggested previously, had it been there? Was it just building throughout the years that this kind of story and these things that you wanted to say were all just amassing, really, and you kind of uh, managed to spill them out in <laughs> in that period? Yeah, I think so. I think it was a case of like, so Queenie is like, the, it's the year in the life of this one girl, right? Um, and so... It was basically just a lot of experiences that I'd heard, that I'd seen, that I'd understood, that I'd been like growing with and like learning. And because it's about like, it's about her value ultimately. So she gets up to a lot of stuff and she's going through heartbreak, but it is in essence about her value. And so just as a black woman, understanding what my value is and understanding how I'm seen. And just, I think, you know, a lot of the stereotypes that are thrown at her are the stereotypes that a lot of black women understand. 
So it's not just me. So it's not it's not a, a, a personal experience. It's very much a universal one that's like been boiled down into one experience. And so I remember just being like, this is what she's going to go through. And so I'm just basically going to amplify lots of things that have happened and loads of situations that do occur. So lots of stuff in like the workplace. I've been lucky in that I've worked in some really good workplaces, but I have always been the only black woman there. But I do understand that like there are some horror stories and I have had some experiences where I've been like, yeah, that's just that's just like out and out racism and I don't really know why there's nothing I can really say because I'm really outnumbered and so it's basically distilling those experiences and amplifying them to make to make something that a lot of people so many people um understood as like their experience and their story and so yeah so it was like a very easy thing to write and if I do write a sequel again I'm like that's a breeze because yeah, like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> because yeah. like it's all there and it's all just how we exist and I think because I have such a such an imagination which works against me a lot of the time um <laughs> it's so it's it was so it felt like an outpouring and it felt like a really good thing to do but in terms of eating there when I when I arrived there there was a, a, a was it, so I was in a, a cottage that is that was on yeah, the ground. Yeah, so take us back. Where was it? Was it is it Suffolk? Was it that so kind it's, of way? It's Suffolk. I had to sign. I had to sign an NDA. So just when you, when you asked where it was, I just suddenly got really scared. Oh, really? I was like, oh, oh my god! <laughs> Are you allowed so to I had, say where? I've, I've revealed the location. I think I've no, got a postcode here. Actually, I'm, I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> so like, you've said Suffolk, so we'll go with Suffolk. Um, and so an so undisclosed said, location. An undisclosed location. Um, and so I borrowed my friend Lydia's car and I and I drove there and I had, as I said, I've always said I haven't I hadn't driven since I passed my test maybe like five years prior. Um, but I was like, no, nah, you can do it again. It's like the fishbone. It's like yeah, if there's an obstacle, the you're going to you're going to get you're going to get through it. Uh, and so I, I drove there and then when I pulled up, um, Jojo's husband was there and, and he was like, OK, yeah, there's like this is what you need. This is this. This is this. And there's food. And I was like, oh, OK, because I was going to go to the shop. And he was like oh, you don't really need to. And then he sort of left and he'd brought me a, a loaf of fresh baked bread. And I was like, what is this? Oh my God, this is like so luxurious. And I and I sort of like went to make a cup of tea and I saw that they'd stocked the fridge and the cupboards with food from Waitrose. And I was like, whoa. And so like, and so I remember just being like so amazed that like I had access to this food and also this like amazing place. And I was just, I, I was really overwhelmed, actually. And I think a lot of the writing 40,000 Words is basically me being like, you have to earn your keep because you have been like put in this, this, this amazing cottage with like all of this scenery and like all this silence and all of this space for the first time in your life. And the food was a really big part of it. Yeah, I mean, and it's an incredible gift and you... I think what's important though, and this is almost, you know, going back to the fishbone again... A lot of people might have just been overwhelmed by the pressure of that situation and been sort of paralysed by, oh, God, I've finally got the time. How am I going to do it? Oh, I need to find distractions. Oh, I've not. I've run out of excuses, essentially. But but you didn't, and that's uh, wholly to your credit. And I think maybe says something about you and Queenie, the story that kind of, you know, needed to tell, as it were. Mm. Thank you. I think it was just that I've always... Well, I mean, I've tried never to take situations and good things for granted. I always, I'm always very, very, very grateful. And so like, even in this time, which is like a very tough time, I'm always very grateful. I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm like, I'm fine. You know, it's lonely and it's hard, but like, I'm safe and well. My friends are safe well. my family is safe and well. And that's really important. I think that's the thing that's kind of got me through this, just by being like grateful for what is there, even though sometimes things were really bad. But in terms of pressure, like, 
definitely, definitely. But also just gratitude kind of overtook that in a way. I wanted to ask you, you worked in publishing before, so you must have known what to expect when Queenie was published. But what surprised you most when it became such a success? Do you know what? I honestly wasn't expecting any of the success of it. And I'm not just saying that to, I'm not just saying that to say that. I mean that I've seen how, I've seen, I've been in the industry. I've seen how things go. I've seen how things work. And I remember saying, I remember saying, you know, it's like a Black Bridget Jones because I wanted people to understand it as a commercial book rather than one of those books by black authors that just gets tucked away because there were lots of there were lots of those I saw lots of those come and go when I was working in publishing and I remember being like this isn't fair and I I very, I very much operate on on fairness and what is right and then like it's obviously living in the world is a very mad place because you're like oh that's not how it should be but there we are um and so I remember being that like, I'm going to just do my best I'm going to do all the press that comes I'm going to work really hard and I'm just going to be honest and I'm going to be authentic because I try to be that in my life anyway. I try to be honest, authentic, because honesty saves time a lot of the time. Um, and I think that I think I think that it's important to be real. And I remember just being like, you can only be yourself. And I remember, you know, it's hard because I'd seen so many authors come and go who were like white middle class. And it felt like that was the that was the the way you had the way to be. That felt like that was the right way to like get your book published, first of all, because that was what I'd seen and that's what we'd seen. Uh, and then to 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 be a different person's person that I was, but I was like, but I'm 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 not. I'm very much like from South London. Don't didn't grow up with money. Didn't grow up with like I don't know. I was just kind of like you can only be yourself because if you, <laughs> there's no point in lying because you'll get caught out. Um, and so I remember doing that, and I remember just being surprised when so many people liked it. And I remember all the reviews. I was waiting for someone to say. Like, it's not good because also I was entering a very new space, like books by black authors at the time were not a thing. So like there has been a huge surge now and I really hope it is going to it's going to stay. I, th- I think it's really amazing. But at the time I was like the only young black author who in the UK who was doing any of of that stuff. Um, and so I was like waiting, waiting, waiting for like bad reviews, but all of them are really good. And I was like, oh, okay, like they're not being, because I was expecting someone to be harsh or like pick it apart. But yeah, yeah. That never happened though. I did have a friend who was like, hey bro, really great to see all the stuff happening. Don't worry about the FT review. And I was, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, sorry, the, and she was like, oh no, no, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. Um, always so, like, helpful, those ones. Always just, helpful. Yeah, yeah. And, but I think, it, but apart from that, I remember just being so, and still to this day, I'm always so surprised that it, it did what it did because it's just for a debut by a black author it was it was like a it was a really surprising um thing at, at, at the time just because the, the landscape had been very white for such yeah. such a long time yeah yeah completely but the landscape very white but at the same time queenie certainly when she's pitching to this all those stories to her editor the thing that struck me was how how timely the book coming out and the stories that she was pitching i mean just because it you know, she was wanting to promote Black Lives Matters. And of course, in last year, that was so timely. Well, I think it's really, I mean, the Black Lives Matter thing was in the book because it was something that I'd been witnessing and it was really hard. I remember finding it so hard. I remember um, on the day that Philando Castile was killed, going into work and having read about it and seeing it very briefly on the news and 
being in this communal kitchen, making a cup of tea and crying because it was so horrible to see. And it was so hard and everyone just walking past and getting on with their days and seeing me crying as well and not really understanding why and not and wanting and not wanting to get involved or ask what was wrong, which I think is quite mad because if I saw someone crying in yeah. my office, I would ask. Yeah. And so the hard thing is like the need for Black Lives Matter has always been there. And so it's resurgence in the last year because of the killings of Breonna um, Taylor and George Floyd have been really heartbreaking because it is something that has been an undercurrent of society and it should have been at the forefront of everything that everyone was talking about all the time but for some reason no one had any and had any space for it and it wasn't important and, you know all of these killings you know again we have a very different uh system of racism here um so we don't have uh we don't it's not the same level of of violence or death but there are still instances um like mark duggan like again completely took me out like i had i was i couldn't believe it and I still can't believe it. And so all of these things will always go into my work because they're things that are really important because I see them. And why doesn't everyone else see them? And why doesn't everyone else talk about them? And so this year, everyone, well, last year, sorry, everyone, everyone talking about Black Lives Matter and, and marching and it being in the news and it being, but again, like being presented as like an enemy, you know, this whole like this, this, this group that were like, you know, dominating and taking over. It was a really hard thing to to see, but again, a good thing to see because it was it was it was more public. Yeah, yeah, no, I I completely completely know what you mean, and I think that notion in terms of critical language at the moment, people are like, oh, this was before its time, and oh, it saw it coming. But I think the reality is it was happening, but nobody wanted to talk about it or think about it or deal with it. And um, yeah, I mean, as you say, it's, I feel like Queenie, it's continued success and as part of the conversation, it's been in dialogue with other works like Renieto Lodge's book and Bernadine Evaristo's. And it's kind of really brought these discussions to people that wouldn't necessarily be having them, that don't necessarily have black people in their social circle and stuff and I wondered what's your what has that kind of been like to be at at the kind of eye of the storm as it were in terms of people's understanding of uh, black people's lives and you know the life of like a black woman growing up in in London like has it been strange to be the focal point and have people um coming to you I'm sure with with things that they've discovered through reading Queenie and finding your book sometimes it's it's amazing and sometimes it's quite hard so I think uh so I mean just living as a black woman anyway there's always been a point of being invisible but also hyper visible so I guess like the invisibility is people not seeing you as the person that you are um and the hyper hyper visibility is people Re, you know, you're the only black person in a room a lot of the time, and so like, but again, but no one, no one actually sees who you are. So that's a really, really hard thing. And so Queenie was was kind of was written to redress so much of that in a way. And I think it's been, it's. I mean, I've always loved the messages that I get from. I remember getting a message from this this younger white woman who was like, um, "I've had a, a, I've I've got a daughter with a with a with a black man." And I was just going to raise her as, as white because I'm, I'm white. But I've read your book and I understand that actually she'll have a very different upbringing to mine because she looks different. And I was like, I mean, to most people it's obvious, but to a lot of people it's not. And so I was like, wow. And I'm really grateful that that 
kid will have that different experience that her mum will now understand that like she requires different things and she requires different support in her life um but the times so I get loads of messages and lots of like I feel less lonely or like oh my god it's like you stole my diary and all of those things are like (laughs) um but then when it comes to I think it's hard when people because you're in that space people then think that you are um a hub of information and that is the tough thing. So I remember when um, that week of like when Black Lives Matter was like really, like really shouting. Um, I remember having to turn my phone off a lot because lots of my my white friends and white colleagues and associates would be messaging me being like, hi, can I have a reading list on what? To, and I'd be like, <laughs> whoa, like, you know, like I, I would... You know, and it's just a very, I would never, I would never ask, I would never ask a friend from a a, a marginalised or different group for a a reading list on anything because it'd be like, go and look for yourself. I'd go look for myself because I know that that person doesn't exist as as a teacher. mentioned people saying oh it's like you've seen my diary like that must have been weird to navigate that people are do feel like they have sort of in, know you intimately now and know everything that's going on like so has that been something that you've had to kind of uh, knock back at times to make make it clear that that Queenie isn't necessarily you that you're not completely interchangeable yeah I feel like it's like the thing that that's the question that I get asked the most <laughs> Like, I find it quite hard because it's like, I would never, so I've, I saw, I always think I saw a film uh, last year, early last year called Rocks. I was invited to a screening um, and it was written by Teresa Rococo. It's incredible. It's just been like long listed for like eight BAFTAs or something. Um, and it's about a young black girl growing up and uh, her mum isn't very well and she has to look after her brother. It's like incredibly heartbreaking. And I know that the writer, Teresa Rococo, is a black woman, but not for one second did I think that that was her life story. I was just like, this is a woman who's written a, a, a film, you know? And so it's that, so I, but I think there is something that happens when it comes to, I think the fact that our stories are so few and far between still is like, if you've written something, you can't have an ima- imagination. It must be your pain and your trauma that you're just putting on a page. And it's like, no, no, no. Like we have imaginations as well. Like, you know, that's, <laughs> that's, that's part of being, you know, a writer is my job. Um, and so that's really hard. And also it's kind of like, what I've written in the book, when I realise that people think it's me, so like if friends' parents have read it. Well, yeah, I was going to ask about your your parents and family as well. So yeah, do they? Oh my god! What, no. Are there any specific incidences where people have maybe? I mean, maybe we shouldn't get into it, but yeah. I mean, no, were... it's fine. My actual family. Let me tell you something. My mum hasn't read it because she was like, "Oh, I'm dyslexic, so you know, I'm not a reader." And I was like, "Okay." My sister was like, I started it, but other things to do. I don't really like books, you know that. And I was like, okay. My big brother read it. And I was like, Claude, and he was like, I don't want to talk about anything, okay? And I was like, no, 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 no. And he was like, can, I don't want to talk about anything. Let's just leave it, but well done. And I was like, okay, thank you. Um, and then like, my dad hasn't read it. So like my family haven't really, they haven't read it. My, na- my nan calls it my little project. Like she doesn't <laughs> care. 
Like she's just like, when are you getting married? When are you having? When are you going to have a grandchild before I die, please? Nothing and like so, family yeah, to keep you grounded all the time. So they haven't, but it's it mainly that anyone who has read it, if it's like a, a friend's parent, because a lot of my friends' parents who are so sweet, they're like they go and buy the book and they're like, look, I've got Candice's book and I'm going to put it on the shelf, I'm going to read it, and um, a lot of of them have to be like, hi, just so you know that I am not. Because I'm just like, I don't want you to think that even though I'm 31 and your, your child is 31, I'm corrupting your child in some way because I'm, <laughs> I'm that character. Um, and so, yeah, so a lot of, so that, for me, that is the thing. I think my thing is like suddenly being like, oh my, oh my God. I remember having to, to Google the cover. I needed the cover really quickly. So I Googled like Queenie. <clears throat> and you know, on Google, it has like a list of questions frequently asked. Oh, yes. Yeah. And the first one was like, is Queenie a true story? And I was like, how do I, like, what do I, I think I might have to put it in my bio. Like Queenie is not my life story, yeah, please. Yeah. Um, but I'm looking forward to when I write more work, people being like, oh, she has a body of work and she can't have done all of these things. So, but she must not be Queenie. <laughs> she really does have a really good imagination. Yes. Are you also a people watcher? Because you really describe loads of personalities throughout the book. Where do, where do you get that inspiration from? So yeah, I'm very much a, I don't know if I'm an introvert. I don't think I am an introvert. I think I'm just someone who is, is an extrovert who's probably quite antisocial. Um, But that just comes from shyness. It doesn't come from anything else. I'm a very, I'm quite a shy person. And I, but I I just have a lot of stuff of being like, why would you say that? Because they don't want to hear that. And so like interviews are fine because it's like, you're being asked a question, but in terms Mm. of actual conversation, I'm not very good at I just get in my head and I'm just like, what? no one cares anyway. So that's, don't worry, I have, I have a therapist, guys. It's all good. It's all going to be fine. Um, and so I spent, I've spent a lot of time in my life just watching people and observing them and listening. And I love listening to people. And I grew up, as I said, with like a really, really, like my nan is like a massive character. She is absolutely, she's so emotional and so mad with it. Um, but also like quite cold. And she's got like five daughters who are all like equally like bonkers um, and then all of the grandkids. And so I was always a quieter one of everyone. So I would just be sitting watching all of this family drama. And then my nan would just say something like, well, anyway, can the only one that I love. And I'd be like, <gasps> oh my God, <laughs> you've ruined everything for me. And then like, so I basically, so I've just grown up in this, like I've grown up like with very chaotic people around and just sort of watching them and just being like, Wow. And so, yeah, I think that's where it comes from. I think it just comes from a love of of watching people and understanding them. You uh, touched on families there and your family. And there's a family um, that is quite fractured and separated at the heart of your your new novel, um, uh, People Person, um, which is about five half siblings who kind of come together this wasn't the novel that you necessarily thought would be the follow-up to Queenie initially. No, I didn't. So I knew I wasn't going to write a, a sequel as yet because I just, I just knew that that wasn't going to happen. My editor told me that wasn't going to happen. She was like, no, I don't want you to be someone who just becomes like the Queenie author. And I was like, oh, okay. So she like very much had my best interest at heart, you know? Um, and so the first novel I wrote was about grief, um, like purely about grief. And I remember finding that quite hard to write but it was important because I I lost two friends like when I was 25 like in quite quick succession and so grief has always been like a big part of of my life it's one of those things that is a real sticking point for me and I remember halfway through writing it my uncle passed away so it was like three years ago but I didn't really have a relationship with him it was my dad's brother and obviously all these things come about where you're like should I have known him more like how could I have known him more but also like I knew of him when I was really young you know it's really hard 
And so writing it was a really tough thing. And then editing it, I was editing it when, when this, when, when the pandemic was sort of like, you know, in its first, in its, in its, in its first, first wave. And um, the grief was so hard to process because so many people were passing away and grief on such a, on such a large scale was so painful because you're feeling for so many people. And again, you know, the numbers are horrific and, but just being like, but every number is a person with a family or kids. And, you know, I remember like Belly Majinga, who was, who worked at um, Victoria Station and had a daughter and passed away and had a daughter and you're just like, yeah, we're just, you know. And so I was like, this is not what I want to write. And and so I kind of, I just got rid of it. And I started thinking really, I said to my sister, I remember just sort of saying like, you know, because, you know, what would happen if like, you know, and she was like, we would all come and sort it out. And I was like, what? And she was like, we would. And I was like, oh. And I mean, she's, she was right. She's honest. She would. But like, it's got me thinking about that bond that you do have. So I don't really talk to many of my half siblings, but I know that if they needed me, I'm there. Like in any, because that's my family, you know? Um, and so it's very much about these five people coming together because they have to. So when's the new book out? I can't wait to read it. Feb 2022. Well, yeah, I mean, that was such an incredible conversation, Candice. Uh, thank you thank so you. much for your time, for your wisdom, for your uh, incredible fishbone story. It's been, it's been a total honour and uh, we can't wait to, uh, to see your upcoming projects and whatever else uh, comes next from you. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. That was so fun. You've been listening to Life on a Plate from Waitrose. I'm Jimmy Famarewa. Thank you to my co-host, Alison Okavie, and our guest, Candice Carty-Williams. To learn more about the series, go to waitrose.com forward slash podcast. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.